Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello, welcome to the fourth episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today, we're going to talk about the relatively new research on a sexual subculture which is called hookup culture. My guest today is Dr. Lisa Waite. Lisa is a sociologist, an associate professor at Occidental College. She received her PhD in sociology at the University of Wisconsin and earned her master's degree in human sexuality from NYU. She has authored over a dozen academic research articles and textbook on the sociology of gender. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Waite. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. As I mentioned earlier, my guest is Dr. Lisa Waite. Dr. Lisa Waite is a sociologist, an associate professor at Occidental College, Lisa, thank you so much for accepting our invitation. Oh, it's my pleasure, of course. I'm very excited about our conversation today because honestly, I think when I was reading your research and your book, I found it fascinating because it shed a light, I would say, in a refreshing and interesting way because I personally moved to the United States for college. I went to UC San Diego and I came from a culture, I came from a feminist household, but I'm from a culture that was oppressive and had Mm -hmm. patriarchal values. So I was feeling, oh my God, wonderful. Finally, I'm at a place that women have equal rights and 
I saw uh, hookups and casual sex on campus as a way of like women's liberation. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I like recently came across your research and I found it very interesting because it was looking at the, this issue from a different perspective. So based on your research, how do you describe American hookup culture? Hookup culture. So there are, there have always been hookups on college campuses since we invented the college campus. There's always been casual sexual encounters between students. Hookup culture is a a campus on which everyone is expected to have casual sexual encounters. So it's not just an option, but it's an imperative. Yeah, and I think that was one thing that was interesting that you, I had this idea that it's good for experimentation and it's inclusive. But from what I learned from your research and book, that's not the case. No, it's quite hierarchical, actually, because the sort of motivation for hooking up is sort of simultaneously uh, supposed to be lust and also the the status of the person that you have the opportunity to hook up with. And so um, in that sense, students who are seen as low status by their peers are excluded from a lot of the sexual activity on campus. Yeah, and it seems like it's more like morally geared toward heterosexual sex, and you got to have what's considered desirable to be able to play the game, quote unquote, in a good way or appropriate way. Yeah, experimentation is definitely not part of, (laughs) I mean, it's experimental in the sense that some of the students are doing things they haven't done before. But it's not experimental in the sense that you get to kind of play with sexuality and discover what you might like or not like. It's actually very rigidly scripted and there's a lot of consequences for deviating from those scripts. Absolutely. I know you were talking about that, how the uh, focus is like not getting emotionally attached and how are like some of the, there are some expectation to kind of help people to appear like unengaged, not and not emotionally invested throughout this process. Mm-hmm, exactly. So uh, what are some of the differences that you see as far as the hookup culture for different genders? Well, so both men and women tend to come into campus being excited about the possibility of engaging sexually with their peers in playful ways. Uh, that's definitely something that both men and women are excited about. And women have been, most young women have been taught their whole lives that, you know, doing things that are boyish or otherwise masculinized are things that are rewarded and approved of. So their mom and dad might have like thought it was okay when she played with Barbies as a kid, but uh, thought it was pretty cool when she liked trucks and she liked dinosaurs, right? And then when she gets to elementary school, they're proud of her for getting good grades in English, but they're bragging about her getting good grades in math. And same thing about the difference between deciding to become a cheerleader or an athlete in middle school and so on and so forth. So when a lot of women get to college campuses, they apply the same logic their parents have been using their whole childhood, which is it's okay to be girly, but if I can be kind of like a stereotypical boy, that's even better. And then, so a lot of these young women feel the same way as young men. Like, here's my chance to sort of be sexually free and experimental. Similarly, both men and women on campus at about the same rate report that they're interested in actually having relationships. 
So one study found that 73% of men and 70% of women said they wish they could be in a committed relationship. So both men and women tend to come to campus with similar hopes and expectations. But in practice, hookup culture is much more um, conducive to satisfying male needs than female needs. And it's over, so women tend to have less pleasure in hookup culture and also they carry more risk and experience more harm. Absolutely. I love when you talk about how the culture plays a role in it, because as you mentioned correctly, that is just being relational sometimes associated with being female and kind of mm-hmm. frowned upon. So everyone want to kind of play this cool and uh, kind of being casual about sexuality and relationship, because that's what's perceived as a value for like, for a uh, male. So it would be Better, I guess. Yeah. So as far as like, you know, we talked about how it's evolved in America. And I know you're talking about the historic background of it. Can you give us uh, some information around that? Oh, sure. Would you like the courtship history or the higher education history? (laughs) Oh, my God, both. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so we'll start with the higher education history. You know, it's funny to me. Or it sort of it sort of dawned on me on me at one point during the book that that it was sort of strange that we thought that college was supposed to be fun. You know, we often say, "Oh, it's the best years of your life." You know, it's going to be amazing, which is a lot of pressure. Um, but it also is a little strange. Like this is all about sort of occupational training and r- rigorous intellectual training. And why do we think it's supposed to be a, a time of your life where you have a lot of raucous partying and, and, and why sexually charged raucous partying? So I kind of looked into that question and I found this really fascinating history of higher education where at the beginning during the colonial era, College was pretty stodgy. It was very staid. It was mostly uh, middle-class men attending who were intending to be ministers themselves. It was very religious. It was very, um, the curriculum was incredibly dry and behavior and and, and schedules were strongly controlled, very rigid uh, from the top down. And then about the mid-1700s, the rich families in America started sending their sons to college to get diplomas to sort of ratify their hoarding of wealth and power. And those men were much less amenable to being pushed around by these minister professors. And that started off a hundred years of rioting on college campuses. And and you have to remember that at this time, college kids had guns. <laughs> they had muskets. <laughs> That's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, muskets and rifles and pistols. So they shot out the windows of buildings and they set buildings on fire. They like would go inside and they would throw furniture out the windows. They would roll barrels full of tar set on fire across the quad. I mean, it was really, it was, it wasn't boring like it used to be. It was actually quite menacing. And some, often they had, um, like the cities would send in militias to try to tamp down these riots. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And in response, the, the presidents of the colleges at the time Decide, they started expelling students who rioted, and sometimes in massive quantities. You know, sometimes an entire class would be expelled, or 25% of the student body would be expelled for these riots. 
And in order to make this a really severe punishment, they, they agreed amongst themselves, the college presidents, that they wouldn't accept into another college someone who had been expelled from one. Oh, wow, that's harsh. Yeah, except for there was one exception. <laughs> and this was um, the president of Union College in Schenectady, New York. And he decides to take in all of the wayward sons that get expelled from all the other schools. And it's at this college in 1825... Um, near the end of this hundred years of riots, where the first social fraternity was formed. And it's no coincidence, because fraternities were, from the beginning, meant to be uh, deviant from the campus community at large. And so they were meant to be, so when colleges were very religious, they were secular, they were interested in economic advancement and not becoming a moral person, fraternities were, uh, they were... Um, all about vice, even from the very beginning, being reckless, drinking a lot, petty crime, and causing trouble. So college presidents were horrified by them, and yet they failed to stop them, and they absolutely just thrived and multiplied across the entire American college landscape. And so they are the ones that sort of bring this idea that college should be fun. These rich young men from wealthy families who aren't interested in subordinating themselves to their professors. And they, and slowly but surely, um, they sort of become to dominate college life. And as colleges democratize and more and more students are attending them, a couple things happen. One thing that happens is women start going to college. This is about 1920s. Mm -hmm. And that's when the fraternity lifestyle transitioned to including trying to get sex from women as sort of a competitive game. You know, before then, um, men were, fraternity men were having sex. They were having sex with each other. And they were also having sex with women who were, who had less power than them. Right. So working class women in town, sex workers, or women they enslaved. But now sex could be a game because the women coming to campus were their social equals. So that happens around 1920. And the other thing that happens is, for the same reason, the democratization of college attendance, American culture gets really interested in higher education. And there's all these college novels coming out, all this popular attention to colleges. And that, that attention solidifies fraternity men as the epitome of the college student. So his lifestyle, and this is where it kind of intersects with the students of today, his lifestyle becomes the model lifestyle for the college student starting about the 1920s. Fascinating. And mm -hmm. I know that like by even by media, by TV shows and the movies right now, the way they portray college, portray college is that you got to have to party and you have to be part of this culture if you want to experience college. So I think that that is very interesting to see what happened as far as the shift from somewhere that was like very more rigid mm -hmm. and religious. And now we're seeing about like, it seems like at the other part of the extreme that we're kind of like forcing this culture upon the students. Yeah, and a lot of people blame Animal House, um, the movie that came out <laughs> right. in 1978. And that did uh, exacerbate this, this idea. Um, and so did alcohol industry after Animal House. They saw that movie and its popularity, and they saw an opportunity. So they spent millions of dollars in the 80s to try to convince America that college students should be drinking. 
then it worked. So that sort of uh, that that exacerbated the problem. And and then we had the this transportation federal transportation act, <laughs> which ties state funding for transportation to their willingness to raise the drinking age from 18 to 21. And um, that happens between 18, 1984 and 1987. And what that does is it basically throws all the power on, on campuses where there's fraternities. It threw all the power to fraternities because now students couldn't drink in the dorm because it's illegal. Right. And, and the campus is policing that. They can't as easily drink in bars and clubs. They need fake IDs and they have to be, you know, risk takers to do that. Sororities aren't allowed, for the most part, to throw parties with alcohol. So what's left is fraternities. And now fraternity men who have been advocating this reckless lifestyle for 200 years on many campuses have this incredible power to control the social life for everyone. That is fascinating because mm -hmm. it seems like, again, there are not equal equal opportunities. And it seems like it's more the power is more on fraternities to kind of control the environment because they kind of have power over these scenes. Mm -hmm. So how, uh, how about the mating history? And I know that in the book you were talking about how this hookup culture is kind of associated with feminist movements. Yeah, I mean, you know, human sexuality is, it hasn't changed a lot over the last millennia, I would argue. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, we are sexual for the most part, not all of us. And we tend to have sex if possible sometime after puberty, which makes some sense. And there's really only, only so many things we can do with one another and only so many people to do it with. We're, we're pretty straightforward when it comes to sexuality, but... What tends to really powerfully influence behavior is the, the cultural and structural constraints and opportunities. And if you look across American history, then you see that changes in sexual behavior and attitudes had a lot to do with kind of what was happening in the society more generally. So, for example, we saw a rise in sexual activity um, between young men and women in the 1920s, because 1920 was the first decade that we had more than 50% of Americans living in cities. And before cities, you didn't have nightlife. <laughs> you know, there was no, there was not enough people in any given place to support a street with bars and clubs and Nickelodeons and burlesque <laughs> calls, right? There is, so now 1920s, which we call the roaring 20s for oh, just this that. reason. <laughs> yeah, right? It's like this really exciting moment. And all these young people are suddenly out from under the, the thumb of their, their parents and mostly working class women and men at this time. And they're going out and courtship changes. It changes from something that happens inside of women's homes where like the mother or aunt would invite over a young man to come sit in the parlor. With, that was with fascinating. I remember reading that part of the book and I didn't know it was like this way in the past. Yeah, and interestingly at the time, um, the phrase making love mm -hmm. referred to more than just, we use it today to refer to sex, right? But right. at the time it even, it referred to like sitting on a porch, like you could make love <laughs> by talking, which is so sweet, actually, right. when you think about it, right? So courtship was like that. But interestingly, it was women had the power, right? Women did the inviting. They decided what the, what the young man and woman did. And they told him when to leave. And they decided whether he got invited back. But 
in the cities, courtship shifts into the public sphere, which is a male sphere, and suddenly men have the power. Particularly, they have the power because they have money. And young women, uh, there's no wage protection for young women. Young women are making barely enough money to get by. So if they want to enjoy this new nightlife, then they need a man to treat them. And so this is the, the, the beginning of men paying for dates. It's the beginning of dates. <laughs> it's the beginning so of men paying for dates. So interesting. Yeah, and so then this is the same time in American history where suddenly women's appearance becomes really important because now women are competing to get men to pay for them to go out. And so it's the, that is the moment where, where um, the reducing diet becomes a thing in America. So before, dieting was just like, you, a diet just referred to like the particular foods you ate. So you would like, like a gluten-free right, diet, you know, right. or, or a vegetarian diet, but like just dieting, meaning to lose weight, that, that, that starts happening in the 1920s. And um, the sale of makeup octuples between 1920 and 30. Oh, wow. So the demands on women's appearance changes. And then also she needs to reward him with some sort of sexy attention or sexual access. And so then we see this rise in, in some sexual activity. But at the time, I mean, in, in a way, these are like college students, today's college students' uh, grandmothers and grandfathers, right? Because they are dating in this very light way. So the, the goal is to go out with someone different all the time. And, and, and the sexual activity is often, but not always, but often pretty light. But it's definitely uh, promiscuous at the time. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is so interesting. And a feminist in me gets so angry. <laughs> <laughs> because one of the thing I do is eating disorder. I help people with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, issues around self-image and body issues are so common these days. Obviously, it's not all related to men and what happens to society, but it kind of makes me think about like the issue from a bigger perspective, which is in societal level. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as the kind of like one thing that I'm very curious about is that I see maybe it's from Southern California or California, but I see the similar pattern in the society, not necessarily in the college students, but also outside colleges. What have been your, have you re- did any research on that? Or what's your thoughts on like club scenes or hookup places? How, how are those places are similar and different? And what are you talking about? Uh, so there's not a lot of research on this, but I, I think we know some things, or at least we can make some strong guesses. And one is that if if a, a person who doesn't go to college or, or who has graduated from college wants to participate in a, in a hookup scene, it's, it's definitely available. So we, they can find it if they, if they want to. That said, a lot, of stud- a lot of students after college and a lot of people in general find it a little bit more difficult to be, well, so, so, so they can find hooking up if they want to, kind of like college students used to do before hookup culture. But most people who are outside of college are not in a hookup culture. So the student that graduates from college and then moves into an apartment and has to get up at 8 in the morning to go to their job Monday through Friday um, is not in a hookup culture. They're in an apartment building, and there's families, and there's whoever there, and the bar is across town. And if, even if they do go to the bar, it's 
if you have to drive home, it's hard to get drunk enough to really get stupid about things, right? So, like, and then if you do <laughs> right. want to hook up, like, where are you going to do it? You know, going back to your shared dorm room is different than driving to some strange person's house and going inside. A lot of both men and women are don't find that to feel as safe, and so um, it's not a hookup culture. So, so it's it you can still hook up if you want to, but it's also quite easy to find it to be inconvenient or just avoid it altogether. I see. So the dynamic is quite, sounds like quite different because in the colleges, you are like most people, especially freshmen are in, col- uh, in their dorm rooms and they, they don't have necessarily the options of going off campus as much. So that's definitely, there are some barriers to kind of to add to the pressure of if you want to have a good time, this is the way to do it. Yeah, when you're in college, you're in hookup culture. If you're living in the residence halls, most residence halls, then you're in it whether you want to be in it or not. Um, and if that suits you, then that works out well. But if it doesn't suit you, then you either opt out and feel isolated from your peers or you opt in ambivalently. That is so interesting because I know in one of the chapters you were talking about uh, the experience of people who are opting out of the experience and this hookup culture and how isolating that can feel. Yeah. And it's, it's not even because all their peers are hooking up all the time. It's because their peers are talking about hooking up all the time and it's absolutely ubiquitous all over social media. So a lot of students who opt out of hooking up feel like they can't be a part of the conversation on campus. It's not even just the sex, right? But the actual conversations that are happening on campus and they're also, they also tend to not go to the parties because a lot of the big raucous parties are, are centered around facilitating hookups. And students that aren't interested in doing that then feel weird when they go to those parties. And, you know, I think we can all understand that, like, so a lot of friendships get cemented at, you know, when, when people get drunk together. Or, Absolutely. You know, or maybe or like, that's my experience. Yeah, or like, you know, when you hold your girlfriend's hair back while she barfs in the toilet like that's a bonding experience right right (laughs) right so they're missing out on a lot of these things um missing out on the conversation they often feel judged by the students who are hooking up as if they're strange or prudish or they think that the students feel judged by them because of their choices and so that they get kind of avoided for those reasons so yeah they can often feel very isolated, like they're not having the real college experience, they're missing out on something important, and they're, they're not making friends. Yeah, which can be very unfortunate and isolating, if considering that many of the people are living on campus and on those dorms. And if you're not part of the culture, it can be very sad. So it seems like most people who goes uh, who go uh, who attend the colleges they have this experience, and I know you were talking about how it is kind of consistent across the United States. So it's not like only California or New York. It seems like it's a kind of widespread experience. And how these people have been exposing, if you, when you get exposed to the hookup culture, how does it impact your uh, relationship and sexual uh, like attitude towards sex long term? Or does it? Yeah. Um, so this, again, this research is a little speculative. But um, when you ask students, do you think hookup culture is good or bad for your, for your ability to be in a relationship? They say it's bad. Because a lot of the skills you need to navigate hookup culture are the exact opposite of what you need to navigate a relationship. And perhaps the most obvious example is 
in hookup culture, you're not supposed to actually like the person you're hooking up with. So you hide and, and suppress all of your positive feelings for someone, for the person you're with, with the exception of lust, you try not to have any affection for them. And it's really off, you know, it's like the worst thing you can get called in hookup culture is desperate. So nobody wants to tell each other they like each other, even when they really do. And there's, you know, some, some, there's one really, really sad moment in the book where this girl, Farah, she's, she's, she's very good at hookup culture. She's mm-hmm. really kind of got this nice hard shell on the outside. And yet she's fallen for this guy she's hooked up with a number of times. And um, they go back and forth and back and forth about this. And then finally he gets up the courage to actually like try to break down their, their dance, you know, right. of, of, of un- not caring about one another. And he, is, he just says, so do you like, like me? And she just looks him straight in the face and says, no. And then she tells me in her, in her notes that she just felt devastated by her own answer, just devastated. And so she just, she just couldn't stop, right? She couldn't stop doing it at the moment she needed to. And um, both she and Teek were the worse off for it. Absolutely. And that is so unfortunate because I guess like the goal based on what you said and the research shows that people want to be in part of the relationships, like have some kind of romantic relationship or committed relationship in any kind of context they're comfortable with. But that is something that most people enjoy. And it seems like although she was interested, but she was kind of like, she didn't want to, she was kind of hesitant to change it in a dynamic. So that's interesting. Yeah, and also students that really would like to be in a relationship but can't tolerate casual sexual contact, they often don't get into relationships at all throughout all of college. Because right now, the way to, it, the way to actually get into a monogamous relationship is to hook up and then potentially hook up again with the same person and then again and again until finally someone admits they like each other. And um, so if students aren't willing to, to go through that period of hooking up and they aren't willing to hook up with lots of different people in the hopes that one of them actually transitions into affection, mm-hmm. then they don't get into relationships at all. Like psychologists in me kind of makes me think it kind of make them vulnerable to like all the emotional distress and all the issues and sometimes trauma. Yeah. And actually, you know, Farah, the girl that told the guy she didn't like him when she did, I interviewed her after she graduated. She was, um, among the first waves of students I interviewed. So or I, I, did, I did research with, and I interviewed her after, and she was, still, she was still trying really hard to break down that shell. That was actually the last guy she ever hooked up with. That was so traumatizing. Oh, wow. But she never hooked up with anyone else again the next three years of college. And um, here she was after graduation, and she was trying really hard to, to feel comfortable expressing liking for someone else just to express a desire to be with someone else and she told me that she was trying to not be so afraid of holding hands with someone oh wow so it really sounds like impacted her and like emotional level yeah yeah and uh it left her feeling like she was very vulnerable and and it was very scary to open up 
Absolutely. So we're, I've noticed that like <laughs> we are toward the end of our time. So again, I think this is a very fascinating conversation. And at least for me, it was a new topic. So I'm sure many of our listeners would, will have some questions and they want to kind of possibly contact you. What would be the best way of contacting you? Well, uh, I have a webpage, which is lisa-wade.com. And on there is all of my social media. So I would be happy to chat with people on Facebook or Twitter or even Instagram if that if that's a good idea. Wonderful. I, I, try to, I try to be responsive. So I'd love to hear from people. That is great because so many in, so many people in academia, they're not necessarily tech savvy. So it's fantastic to see <laughs> that you are very active. And also, uh, are you in the book tour right now? Uh, yes, I, I, I just did. Um, I'm doing my third event here in New Orleans where I am based. And then uh, and then I hop on a plane over the weekend to do uh, six or seven cities before I come home. Okay, fantastic. And I make sure that I leave the link to your website and all the information in the show notes so people would be able to contact you and also the book because I think I personally read the book and it was fantastic. Thank you so much, Lisa, for your time. It was an honor to interview you and thank you for your time. Oh, thank you for your enthusiasm. Um, I really appreciate it. And I'm very proud of the students in the book. So I hope everyone gets to hear what they have to say. Wonderful. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Wade. We talked about the differences between a sexual culture that includes hooking up and a hookup culture. Also, we talked about the questions of when, why, and where hookup culture emerged. Again, thank you so much for listening to this show. And if you have a moment, I would really appreciate if you leave us an honest review on iTunes. Thank you so much. and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.